Open your Bibles to Proverbs 11. Proverbs 10, forgive me. All right, I'm going to read from Proverbs 10:26, and I'm going to read through 11. 10:26 is vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. So is the lazy man to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. He who is devoid of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. He who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but one who hates being surety is secure. A gracious woman retains honor, but ruthless men retain riches. A merciful man does good for his own soul, but he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. The wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. As righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their ways are his delight. Though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the, po- but the posterity of the righteous will be delivered. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. A generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. 
The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. He who earnestly seeks good finds favor, but trouble will come to him who seeks evil. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. Not a hodgepodge. We'll talk about it. All right, so the end of chapter 10. The end of chapter 10, we left off here. And so what I want to do is pick up on verse 27. 26 was sort of this bridge verse, and 27 to the end of the chapter is sort of a collection. So 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. So this is a parenthetical, sorry, this is a antithetical parallelism. Say that three times fast. So the antithetical element, right, the two things are opposed to each other, and they're parallel, side by side. And so we look at this, and we have the idea of long life coming with the fear of the Lord. So wisdom gives life. And then the idea that wickedness, which is rooted in not having wisdom but being foolish, brings death. Now, we were just talking about it after the membership class, the idea that, that the choices that you make, you always pick the thing that you think is most good, and you can deceive yourself. There's this process of self-deception. And so what happens is you kind of have ups and downs of the mind, ups and downs of how much you value something. Right? Think about how you think food's more valuable when you're more hungry. And so... The idea that at a given time, you might value getting food, depending on how hungry you are, over being honest. And so you might steal. And so in that circumstance, you may be a believer and you may understand that the knowledge of God is the highest good. But you can deceive yourself in the moment, especially in the face of suffering, to choose something that would suggest that you believe contradictory thoughts to that. You, in fact, think that getting food is the good over doing what God commands and seeking the knowledge of God. And so you might think man does live on bread alone and not on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God in that moment. But you don't lose your saving faith, but you do have this disorder and the moving around of valuation in your mind. And so the idea that the wicked, what they do is they make choices that tend toward the shortening of life. And that comes from curse and from social consequences and the very structure of reality itself. And the way in which there is a destruction of health in the disordering of the soul, that the disordering of the soul brings about the disordering of the body. Now, obviously, there's also the way in which wisdom is itself everlasting life. And so when you have wickedness and foolishness, is deeply embedded in a person, then there is a way in which there's death already there, and it's simply being worked out, and the person being removed from the land. Now, these relate to the following verses here in terms of the idea of hope and expectation. Think about the idea that the Lord prolongs the days of those who fear the Lord. Well, go to verse 28. The hope of the righteous will be gladness. So there's, there's, a, prolong, there's a long life and there's joy. And then, the way of the Lord is strength for the upright. The strength. So, life and joy and strength coming together. On the antithetical side, look at the bottom of verse 27. But the years of the Lord will be, sorry, but, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. And at verse 28, 
the antithetical parallelism there, as opposed to, sorry, I'm wrong, verse 29. On verse 29, the antithetical parallelism there, you have the way of the Lord is strength to the upright, but, and then you have, uh, you have this italic add-in there that's, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. Take out the italics. That's them trying to put in those words to make it make more sense in English. Let's think what is actually being said here. The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but the way of the Lord, and the word destruction there, a more literal translation is actually terror. And so you say, but the way of the Lord is terror to the workers of iniquity. Think about the strength that comes from those who are upright as they apply the law. Right? The law is a tool of dominion. It teaches you how to exercise dominion. And when you apply the law, it actually terrifies the wicked. I mean, you know, what are the fevered terror dreams of Democrats? Just think about it for a second. They're like worried that America is a hotbed of Puritanism. They're like, any moment now, and some sort of theocratic regime will arise from the ashes. If only. Right? And so just a few people trying to be courageous and, and pushing on this, and, and, and mainstream liberalism is worried about the establishment of some sort of puritanical regime. Right? Well, I claim dibs on president. Right? But, so if, if we can get there, great. And I'm glad that they're terrified at it. But it's, it's hilarious and you can see, I mean, look at what the media is doing now in response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. There, there are all these concerns about all of these other social conservatism things, like the removal of gay marriage and other nonsense like that. You know, I, I hope their fears are brought into reality. But the application of the law of God in some ways brings about this sort of terror. So the idea of strength, and you think about warfare, spiritual warfare. When your enemy is terrified, they run away. So you apply the law, it gives you strength, you accomplish things, it terrifies your enemies, they run away, follow up with pursuit. And so that principle of pursuit and applying the law in new ways, you keep pressing on, you reform further, and it pushes on and drives them into further terror. You can see in the warfare of Israel over and over again, when the, there's a righteous, courageous attempt to apply the law of God and to resist evil and to push out the enemies out of Israel, and the, the pursuing, they went to victory. And typically what happens is there's a getting tired of the warfare and a stopping and a not pushing on. And so the failure to continue to apply actually emboldens the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. And what it does is it causes them like jackals to to go around the edges, and they become like lions and they attack. And so, when we are not bold, when we are ashamed, it encourages attack. But when we are bold, it's a terror to the enemies of God. And so, the application of the way of the Lord is our strength, and it is a terror to them. Now, verse 28, the hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. So, what they expect to get, a hope is a confident desire, you think about this, you, you do some sort of work, you expect to get paid for something, or right? maybe you have an invoice that's out and somebody's supposed to pay you on it, you expect it's going to get paid, and when it doesn't get paid, you know, that dashing of hopes is, is taking away of morale. It, it discourages further action. God causes it so that the hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. And so 
God structures things to discourage the wicked and to encourage the righteous. And so God is, is going to give us long life. He'll encourage our morale. He will give us strength. He's going to shorten the lives of our enemies. He's going to destroy their morale. And he's going to cause them to run away in terror. It's sort of like the book of Joshua and multiple other places like the Great Commission where there's a promise that he will be with us and what we need to do is go forward and conquer. And so he's with us. Let's move. Verse 30. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the righteous bring forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. So, the righteous have stability. The wicked get removed. The righteous speaks wisdom. The perverse tongue is cut out. Right? So this idea of, of bringing forth wisdom as a strength, a proclamation, a sending out, and there's this silencing. Right, The mouths of the obstreperous are silenced. And this is a way in which you know, this is very. This is embedded in the structure of perverse speech. Okay, so if it's the case that homosexuality is something where you're born that way, okay, they're born that way. But wait, now the effort is to say that there's, you know, we should basically support people's desires to change in terms of changing their bodily structures as to who they are. And you say, you know, it's wrong to stereotype people as being male or female based upon certain desires, but if your child behaves in a certain way that's stereotypically female and they're male, you should probably get surgery that reorients their entire body to no longer be male to fit with the stereotypes of femaleness. So it's nonsense. Right? The, the nonsensical nature of the assertions of these things cause themselves to be meaningless. Which prescription should I follow? Do A when I see B or do non-A when I see B? And the interpretation of the things and the prescriptions of actions are self-refuting. And so the more clear the perverseness, the more clearly it contradicts what the Bible says, the more absurd it is. You know, one of the claims of Marxism is the assertion that, that, that capitalists steal the labor of the proletariat. And so what we need to do is to realize there's no private property. Well, if there's no private property, how are they stealing from the proletariat? They don't have any property to be taken. They don't own the fruits of their wages. What a bourgeois idea. Stop being so bougie. Right? And so the problem with these ideas is that they are self-refuting at their roots. They do not make sense. And the way they take hold of people's minds is this confusion that it generates and the way in which it discourages critical thought and the association of things into kind of packages of experience, which is why there's so much emphasis on experience. But as there's a thoughtfulness, right? The righteous can disentangle these things. Uh, the righteous have stability. Their behavior is self-supporting. The system of thought is rigorous and clear and moves out to the edges and there's more to discover when you get there. And so the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom 
And this wisdom pushes away darkness. And this wisdom has the effect of reordering things. And so, these words are fitting to have beauty. The lips of the righteous know what's acceptable. There's, there's wisdom that comes forth and these acceptable words. And this, this word acceptable here, um, the word acceptable there could also be translated as pleasing. And so when you think about the idea of, of what is pleasing versus what is perverse, perversity has to do with sort of twistedness, ugliness, and so this idea of being pleasing, being beautiful, this is a contrast between beauty and ugliness. So, so words that are wise ought to be said beautifully. And it's fitting for them to be beautiful. And when, they're, when beautiful words are spoken to communicate wisdom, that is fitting. But there's not any way in which ugliness can really be fitting. <coughs> ugliness is by its very nature the idea of things that, that are not fitting together. That's why they're ugly. And so the idea that the words of the wicked, that the mouth of the wicked is ugly, well, that's true. The ideas themselves are not fitting to words. And you also can't really make it fit. right? It's lipstick on a pig. It's gold on a pig's snout. It's... it's trying to put an outward veneer on something that's ugly at its core. And so these words of the perverse on their surface can seem pleasant and the focus on the surface level makes it so that there's an emphasis there, right? You look at in popular media, there's lots of gloss, there's lots of shine. But you analyze it below the skin and it's ugly. And so the gloss and shine are themselves in the service of ugliness. And so if we can skillfully put gold to service, if we can skillfully use beauty and use it for righteousness and use it well, that beauty is so much more beautiful than that surface level beauty. And so you think about the righteous having stability, the righteous mouth bringing forth wisdom, and the righteous lips knowing what is acceptable or pleasant, that allows when we build things for us to have a stable presence. And so the righteous ought to be concerned for long-lasting wisdom and beauty. And so when we build churches, when we build households, when we build states, our concern has to be not just for the quick accomplishment, but it has to be for the purpose of having something that lasts. And that when it lasts, it's something that's passed down across generations. And so the work that goes across generations has to be work that is grounded in depth. It has to have foundations, which we saw earlier, the idea that there is a, a way that wisdom and the righteous have foundations. So having philosophical answers and having applications that are connected down to those deep answers and being able to consistently apply them. And so the repetition of principles is important to make sure that those things are well grounded and understanding the meaning of them and the argumentation associated with them. So 
remember verse 29 says the way of the Lord is strength for the upright and that strength um, that word for strength there is essentially a mountain fortress and we looked back earlier at trying to find the verse that it was there's an earlier verse that talks about uh, foundation and the idea of a stronghold well forgive me I've lost where that was but there's an earlier verse in the chapter with that. And so we see wickedness removes itself. It is unstable. It silences itself by its own contradictions. And it is perverse and ugly. And so we have to play the long game. Which means we don't have an, ex- we don't have an excuse to be slow. right? Sometimes we as post-millennials, we can say, in the long run we win, so let's you know, play tiddlywinks. What we have to do is say, Let's make progress. The progress must be lasting. Let's play for the long game. Let's play to win. Let's play now. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8 fit together as a section. This is about security through honesty and righteousness. Security through honesty and righteousness. Now, when we get past this section, verse 9 is a is a Janus, which I've got to find a better name for that because it's basically here's a pagan god with two faces that looks both ways. Let's find a better Christian way of referring to this. So here's a verse that looks two ways. Um, so this verse, verse 9, is looking back at 1 through 8 and it looks forward at 10 through 15. 10 through 15 is about words spoken in community. Okay, So we're going to have honesty and righteousness create stability. We have the linking verse at verse 9. And then 10 through 15 is about this idea of words and their impact in community. So do you see how that's an expansion off of the chapter 10 ending? Okay, so let's look at now the beginning of chapter 11. Chapter 11, the security, verse three, eight verses, security through honesty and righteousness. Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So, you think about dishonest scales and just weights. This has to do with fraud. This has to do with counterfeiting. This has to do with uh, you know, violating contracts. This has to do with fiat currency. This has to do with um, defaulting on obligations. So when you present something to someone to make it look like it's very good and you're trying to get them to take something that in fact has less value than you are claiming, you are presenting an abomination to the Lord to this person, and you're trying to pass it off as good. A just weight is the delight of God. And so when we have dishonest scales, we are bringing curse on ourselves. There's nothing more destabilizing than the curse of God. Whereas just weights, although you might not be able to make the quick dollar by getting somebody to pay you more for something that you paid less for, you are going to be able to do honorable trade without fraud. Now, on a national level... We are bringing curse on ourselves in the violation of this. On the national level, the way we have done that is first, under Nixon, the ending of the obligation of the payment of gold for Federal Reserve notes. And then across generations, using the ending of that currency attachment to gold to use the ability to make dollars without any sort of backing but to use coercive power as the value generator for currency. Why does the American dollar have any value? The American dollar has value because the government makes you pay taxes with it. 
So it equals the value associated with the forcibly extracted wealth. Higher taxes actually increase the value of the dollar by making the demand for the dollar higher. And at the same time, the federal government, through the Federal Reserve, a corporate private partnership nonsense, that this thing is a thing that generates money and issues it out through a banking system to give it to banks so that they can lend it out, having had the money offered to them by the Federal Reserve, and they can give it to the general public. The creation of that money and the multiplication of it by the banks enters dollars into the market, which props up prices and has the effect of causing people to buy things because they believe the economy is good. It's a way of manipulating behaviors through cheap debt and through the expansion of money supply, making it feel like there are more goods in circulation. And this mechanism of trying to put that out there and to then take the money away, not principally by necessarily extracting the dollars back out of the system, but by reducing the availability of credit and reducing the amount of money going out to buy things without telling anybody how much money is being made at the time of the buying, these mechanisms are using unjust weights and measures. They are using things that appear to have value with the person controlling its value by changing the total amount of dollars in the marketplace. And the value of the currency, the more you have of it, the less valuable it is. And so the generation of it to buy things and then the pulling of it away when you have things that you own, right? the effect is that you can manipulate markets. And so the federal government is engaged through the Federal Reserve in a massive system of dishonest scales in controlling asset prices and using that power to manipulate the behaviors of workers and business owners and using the banking system and the credit system to dramatically alter those behaviors. It is much easier sometimes to get borrowing capacity than it is at other times. And that is because of this mechanism. And so you interact with bankers. If you interact with the same bankers over a period of time, sometimes they're hot to trot on loaning wherever they can find opportunity to lend it, and other times they're hot to trot on not. And that makes it so they get real worried about the loans that a few months ago they were real happy about. And so this up and downness, it's it's sort of like uppers and downers into the banking system, and the individual bankers seem to get pieces of it through the air. And so this this process of dishonest scales on a national level can be effective at creating short-term wealth. It is not an effective mechanism for creating long-term wealth and stability and encouraging savings. And savings is the essential element for capitalism. Without capital, without savings, there is no capitalism. Because capitalism is based upon the principle that you save in order to take resources and use them in order to generate more resources to increase productivity. And so when you make it so that there is this massive system of debt load that goes across generations, this is a con game designed to extract wealth out of the expected earnings of future generations. And so Social Security, Medicare, the system of, of, of the welfare state, the education state, the warfare state, the entire extensive regime of debt is designed around that manipulative system. And the way that federal debt continues to be able to be serviced is by the creation of dollars out of thin air. This is a massive effort 
at dishonest weights and measures. And so we have to expect that there will be curse on that. It's an abomination to God. So does that mean it's wrong for you to have money in the bank? No. Would it be wrong for you to own a bank? No. Would it be wrong for you to expect that this will go on forever? Yes. And so does that mean that you should just put your money in the ground? No. You should, however, prepare some things. You have an obligation to be able to deal with what are your immediate needs? What are the basic security needs you have for your family? What are the basic food needs and water needs you need? And to have a plan as you build resources to be able to do more. And you focus on trying to build things out in terms of generating wealth into the near future because, guess what? The earth is full of cursed behavior. And to say that you think it's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month or next year or even the next decade, you are pretending to know what's going to happen. The Roman Empire manipulated its currency for centuries before it collapsed. The Soviet Union, I mean, come on, who thought that would last for decades? But it did. And, you know, the Chinese are manipulating their systems and they've generated lots of wealth. It's not going to last forever. Right? Their manipulation is worse than ours. Who will collapse first, us or them? But neither of them are systems that will last in a really long-term way. And so what you do is you prepare things, you build things honestly, and you know what happens after centralization? Decentralization. And when there's decentralization, the people that are prepared are able to build and so the long-term way we can prepare things to have an inheritance for our children and our children's children is we must build honestly and we must realize that blessing comes on the just weights and abomination is the identity of dishonest scales. Now, the belief that this is not true leads to pride. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. And so our desire to honestly work, to accumulate gradually across time, to build things, to learn, to get better at things, to have honest service, to be able to lead well. If we take the giftings we have and seek to steward them well, that's humility. Right? We've been reading about in chapter 12 of Romans the idea of find your gifts and seek to use them in service for others. That's how you build wealth. It's also how you bless your community. It's how you bless your home. It's how you bless your friends. You seek to take the gifts you have and use them to accomplish things, to serve. And as you do that, it builds wealth, it builds blessing, it encourages, it strengthens that community. And so that humility of service causes blessing. And that humility is with the wise. With the humble is wisdom. There's a relationship there. Humility is caused by wisdom, and wisdom causes humility. And so, on the other side, pride Pride causes people to behave foolishly and when they are fools, they are proud and it brings shame. And so the implication here is that humility is a sign of wisdom and wisdom comes with honor. Humility comes with honor. Humility is the road to honor. And so humble service, seeking to build things, seeking to serve the people around you, taking the giftings you have, putting them to use, they gradually build. This little church has been around for seven years. Not a single family joined for the first four. And now, all of a sudden, visitors and people considering membership and all of that, you just do 
what your duty is. And the Lord at some point chooses to bless it and give it fruit. And that's the responsibility. Verse 3, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. When you seek to apply the word and you seek to have integrity, the integrity allows you to seek to be consistent and you see the implications of things. And the implications of things as they're applied, it makes it so that's a guide, right? So there's this idea that the explicit statements of the Bible, but also the necessary inferences. And so taking the statements and then seeking to have integrity and applying them and pushing them out to the edges, right? That's a guide. And it's interesting, you seek to apply what the Lord tells you to do, and you don't necessarily know what the next steps are, but the next steps become more and more clear as you start to apply the things you know God is telling you to do. And as you work through them, you, you see the next steps. But the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Their own crookedness makes it so that they don't have integrity and they work against themselves. And so that incoherence will destroy it. You can see the way in which you know, the ridiculous liberal secular culture is eating itself. Right? Look at how feminists are interacting with the trans agenda. Right? Like trying to protect women and then all of a sudden you're not the only women but men are women and they're better at everything you do, especially running and swimming. Right? So these things, this is nonsense that destroys itself. If you have these liberal women that are terrified to say that they want to do anything to protect women's ability to have women's anything because you can't define a woman. And so the way it eats itself, it is this self-destructive, self-eating thing. And so we can laugh. Just don't give your kids to them. Verse 4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. Okay, so we have righteousness referenced three times in these verses. And so we've been focusing on honesty and coherence, and now we're looking at righteousness. And so both, they're all related to security, right? But we're looking at righteousness provides, or honesty provides security and stability, and now righteousness is what's providing security and stability. So the idea that in the day of wrath, in the day when God brings judgment, riches don't profit, which is why unjust weights and measures is a way to make money, if you bring down the curse of God, bad investment. So the righteous, the you know, righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright. That's very similar to the idea of integrity of the upright directs their way. And so there's this way in which we're being told, over, we're being we're having repetition here, the repetition of the basic things, the repetition of the important things to remember, and that is as you seek to apply what you already know is good, you will find it is easier to know what is good to do. Apply what you know. Apply 1% of what you know. Just start applying some of the things you know. And you will find that it becomes more and more clear, more and more obvious, easier and easier to apply more of what you know. And things will become more clear. And the foolishness of falsity will become more clear. 
Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. Do you think that those who use unjust weights and measures to get much riches will have a way in which their unjust weights and measures come to fall in their own heads? Or is that beyond God's skill? Is God not a very good author? Is he bad at writing stories? Does he not give good plot arcs? The unfaithful will be caught by their lust. The lust for unjust gains will be used to catch them. These people who rule the federal system and who rule the massive monetary system will be destroyed by their own lust for power and money. Their lust for unjust power and unjust money. The righteous, righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them. Do you think that using just weights and seeking to be honest in your labor will be used to deliver you from that destruction, to help you to continue to walk in the right way, and will be used to deliver you so that you're set up and so that across generations there's blessing that can be given? That's what these Proverbs are saying. The linking of them together, you can see how these things relate. The head here of this section, this idea of the abomination of unjust weights and measures. If you don't look at all of these other things going downstream from that, you, you're not going to see the way that they connect back. But think about how strong of a word abomination is. And this, why this very specific thing? Everything seems so general here, right? You have a very specific thing, unjust weights and measures, that's abomination. And then you have these general statements about righteousness. So when you see a very particular example and you have generalized statements, you can connect to the specific thing. And you can apply these to other specifics, right? Think about other forms of unrighteousness. Think about other forms of wickedness, other forms of unfaithfulness. These things apply. But you, you can get a deeper understanding if you take the nearby specific and take the general principles and apply it. It gives you a tutor to think about the way it applies in a specific case. Now, verse 7 and 8, which end out this section, when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. So, the wicked expects all of his good in this life. And in dying and going to eternal everlasting punishment, the hope perishes. The expectation perishes. The good is something you can take with you. The good is something that continues. The good is inalienable. And so the knowledge of God, the wisdom that is revealed, is something you take with you. It transforms you here. It gives you power here. It gives you blessing here. It makes it so you can bless other people here and you can take it with you. 
but the false goods have no ongoing benefit. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. That's true in history. It's true on the day of judgment. It's true at death. And so the middle verse, 9, the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Honesty of the righteous, they use knowledge. And they use knowledge against the dishonesty of the wicked. They use knowledge against the unrighteousness of the wicked. We have security against evil by knowledge. The stability of the possession of God by knowledge. The hypocrite with his mouth, he tries to destroy his neighbor. And he does that by trying to cheat him. Right? Dishonest weights and measures. He does that by seeking to bring honor to himself by slandering his neighbor. Right? There's, there's, there's all sorts of things like this. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. But through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. And so this ability to use knowledge to avoid the harms, the ability to use knowledge to defuse the traps, the ability to use knowledge to defeat the opponent, to be able to gather people to work against the evil cause. And so knowledge is a powerful tool that allows for these things to be done. And so this is a dangerous world, and if you want security, get the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God gives you wisdom to overcome wickedness, to subdue evil, to be able to order your life, to have security, to have protection. And if all else fails in this life, they cannot take the knowledge away from you. That knowledge itself is a security deposit. It's the beginning of good things to come, and it cannot be taken away. And so these next five verses, this section, words in community, you think about the magnification of things. On the individual level, on the individual transactional level, that's one thing. But what about the city? What about the neighborhood? What about a people as a whole? And so words, the magnification of the effect of these things is seen in the community, the community position. Verse 10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. This is a magnification. If it goes well with the righteous, the righteous have power and it blesses everybody, and so there's a rejoicing in the city. But when the wicked rule, there is oppression all over the place. And so if the wicked perish, the removal of the wicked brings jubilation. People who don't even know their right hand from their left are joyful oftentimes at the removal of an oppressor. Think about Iraq. General celebration at the removal of Saddam Hussein, and they had no idea what to do when he was gone. And so the idea of the removal of the wicked is a jubilation that occurs. There's this rejoicing that occurs. And so you see that happen in the removal of the wicked. And the fruition, the benefit of the righteous reigning brings about rejoicing. But the short-term burst occurs at the removal of the wicked. And so if we use the principle of pursuit, we need to realize that what we want to do is if we see the wicked removed, when they perish... And there's jubilation about that. The righteous moving and seeking to do well and to put things into place. We oftentimes see our enemies defeated and we kind of smile about it and sit back and relax and say, oh, that's good. That's the time to charge. 
That's the time to move forward. You know when we're going to have the best opportunities to do the most to see abortion ended in Arizona? Right now. So if you've not ever been involved in that, now is the time to think about it. This is the time. So when you see the wicked cast down, that's the appropriate time to seek to do action, to take advantage of the pursuit. And then to give the long-term blessing of the rejoicing of having the righteous do well. And by the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. We have to see the upright blessed, and we do that by seeking to do honestly with each other. We seek to bless each other, serve each other. If we serve each other, we bring blessing on each other. We bring blessing on ourselves. Those who serve, seeking to bless each other, those are the upright. And so that exalts that group, and it exalts the city. The exaltation of the righteous brings blessing on the city. And so the polis, the land, the nation, is advanced by the blessing of the righteous. And so that means resisting the wicked, in particular resisting the words of the wicked. And we just read about how the way of the Lord gives strength to the righteous, to the upright, and it's a terror to the wicked, which means we don't cower about it. We should punish people who are assassins who kill babies in the womb. We should also punish people who pay for assassins to kill babies in their own womb. That's not a popular position. But guess what? Murder should be punished. People who hire assassins and assassins. And so in Arizona right now, we just a few months ago, we had a law that made it so that no longer is there any punishment for women who hire somebody to kill their baby. Okay? That law is unjust. It's still in the books that abortion in all cases is illegal in the state of Arizona. That needs to be enforced, and we need to advocate as Christians for the idea that the assassin, as well as the person hiring the assassin, both of them are guilty of criminal action against the baby. We need to say that and not say, hey, for political convenience, let's not push on that too hard. Let's push on this little thing. Let's make a little advance. No. We have to be bold, and we have to speak the truth, and apply the law of God, and not back down. And that will be terrifying to our enemies. So be it. And so... Now is the time to speak these things and to shut the mouths of the wicked. And when they say what you're doing, they try to make you shamed about it, you speak boldly about it back. <coughs> when you speak boldly about it back and show the foolishness of their own position, the effect is that their mouths are silenced and they will not overthrow the city anymore by their wicked mouths. Twelve. He who is devoid of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. The despising of the neighbor by the words, the mouth of the wicked, the mouth of the wicked, they speak evil things, they speak falsehood, they encourage wickedness by their words, they slander, they bring false witness, they bring falsehood into the public square, they speak lies against the law of God, they're devoid of wisdom and they despise their neighbor. Unjust laws are a despising of the neighbor, it's an imposition of tyranny. Unjust laws are a despising of the neighbor. And we're talking about the context of the city. But a man of understanding holds his peace. He doesn't advocate for those wicked things. He doesn't speak in the courts unjust things. You know, Leviticus says, if you hear somebody swear falsely, it's your job to tell the people that they've sworn falsely. And so there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. 
and the righteous knows when to hold his tongue and when to speak. A man of understanding doesn't speak everything that he could say to harm his enemies. He holds his tongue and he says the things that are fitting. There's a time to speak against somebody and there's a time to not. 13, a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is a, a faithful spirit conceals a matter. A talebearer revealing secrets, you tell confidences, you tell secret things to somebody and they share it unnecessarily with other people. But he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. If you know people who tell you other pieces of news, don't tell them your secrets. If you know a faithful person and you're looking for someone to get counsel from, that's the person you can expect to keep your confidence. If someone refuses to tell you a confidential matter, you may desire to hear about it, but it lets you know that they're a faithful holder of secrets. And if they tell you, they act as a talebearer, and you know not to trust them with your secrets. And so hopefully that creates a social pressure, a peer pressure for all of you, to be desirous to see proper things covered. And so one of the ways you deal with this also, somebody comes to you, reveals secret, negative thing about somebody else, the appropriate thing to do in conflict resolution is say, have you talked to them? If you didn't talk to them, let's go talk to them now, or maybe you can talk to them, and I'll let them know tomorrow that we talked about that you were going to talk to them. And if you haven't, that will probably be a problem. That mechanism to stop the unnecessary spreading of secrets and you make it so that people deal with problems between the people that have the problems. That's how a city stays together. And this is the city of God. The church is the city of God. How do we maintain relationship? We maintain relationship by preserving the city of God through civil discussion and through eliminating gossip, not revealing secrets unnecessarily, concealing matters that ought to be concealed, and causing conflict resolution to be done by pulling people together. And so in the context of conflict resolution, think about who despises their neighbor and who holds his peace. Verse 14, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. In the church and in the state, God establishes republics. He does that because you need a multitude of counselors. Right now we have one officer in the church. This is not good. And a multitude of counselors is safety. The city doesn't run well with one officer. And so right now, we're all working together, the men sit on the council, but we need to get to a place where we see counsel, where there's counsel. <laughs> a council where there's counsel. The idea where there's a focused responsibility of rule. And where there is no council, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So God established a republic for the civil polity of Israel, and God established a republic in the Presbyterian form of government in the church. We have the king. God is fit to be king. Christ is fit to be king. Besides that, the rest will be disappointments. There is safety for organizations of rule that involve multiple households and having many counselors. And where you don't have that, the people fall. We've been talking about the importance of stability. If you want to see stability here and you want this church to be more than a way station, we want it to be something that will do something across generations, then what needs to happen is we need to have the stability of multiple elders. So if you are fit to be an officer, great. Let's get the process rolling. If you're not fit, get fit. Right? That's 
what needs to happen. And so that allows for the idea that there is, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. He who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but he who hates being surety is secure. And on the individual level, if you make it so that you yourself are quick to be responsible for somebody else's problem, you are going to suffer. But if you are slow to make agreements, the literal language is he who hates clasping hands. <laughs> right? The guy who's slow to shake hands to close the deal, he's secure. And so you be careful about that. Remember we were talking about the order of priority about where to put resources and where to give help? This relates to that. Be slow to be the one who takes responsibility for the other person's problem. These are the rules for helping us to see how to deal with things in terms of a social order, the city, the people, relationships between parties, the idea of contractual order. These are all verses about words in community and how they are to be used. They are connected through verse 9. Verse 9 teaches us about security against evil security against evil words by knowledge and how knowledge is the security against that and the earlier section the first eight verses teaches us about how security is obtained through honesty and righteousness there is a structure to these proverbs they fit together they help us to interpret each other they give us sets of verses about subjects and help us to have a relatively full orbed view of a subject matter and design they're designed to push us to think about those things more and to connect them to other sets and to think how do they connect to the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are the perfect systematic ordering of our duties. Comments, questions, objections for the voting members and those with floor rights. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would teach us out of your word. We ask that you would cause us to be illuminated, that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would give us strength and power, that you would cause us to see abortion totally outlawed in this land, that you would cause us to see all of the criminals involved, those who are taking money to kill babies and those who pay money to kill babies, that they would all be punished, that we would see biblical justice administered, and that murder would not be left alone, but it would be driven underground and driven out of state. And we pray that you would cause this to be done. Father, I ask that you would Help us to do business honestly with each other, to serve each other with our blessings, that you would give us strength to increase in dominion, that you would cause our church to have good order, that the city of God would be prospered here and blessed, that you would help us to be able to see good rule established. I ask that you would send workers in for the harvest, that you would add officers, that you would give us good order, that you would add members, that you would help us to deploy resources and to not waste them, to not have them sit aside in fallow ground, but that we would cause our resources to be stewarded well for your glory and i ask that you would do these things that we would see phoenix and maricopa county and arizona claimed for the lord jesus christ that this land would covenant under the kingship of christ in our very lifetimes and i pray for this in the name of jesus christ